Welcome to the B&E Podcast with Brandon Colby-Cook and Evan Schulte. Exploring the creative process and finding the balance between artistry and industry. Entirely uncut and unscripted. All right. All right. Brandon and Evan show. <laughs> Episode number 20-something. 23. 23. Wow, no kidding. Yeah, Michael Jordan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the like Michael it. Jordan of episodes. <laughs> and you're probably hearing another voice. Uh, we've got two, two interviews, two guests on our, on our show, two episodes in a row. Yeah, two guests in a row. Sweet. Which is, you know, that's that's different for us. Yeah. <laughs> is it normally just you guys? Yeah, pretty much. Just right. us just bullshitting. Yeah, you're the third guest that we've awesome. had on the show. I'm um, honored to be here. Yeah, so this is Owen Lackadon. Uh, um, he's a novel writer. He loves trains. Uh, um, I do love trains. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping that wouldn't come up. Uh, <laughs> and it's the first thing. <laughs> Just get that right How on. How about right? writing novels on trains? Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I ride a lot of trains, but I don't write on trains. I, like, put on my headphones and stare out the window. <laughs> Enjoy the train experience. But I try to throw trains into the books. The, the next one that's coming out next year is about, like, hobo, like, kids riding trains, like, freight trains. Oh, oh nice. So. So how many books, how many books do you have published now? Well, as of uh, the March 15th, I'll have six, five under my own name and then one under a pen name. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So okay. so how come uh, how come you do some under your own name and un- some under another name? Well, so the uh, the ones under my name are all part of a series uh, about an FBI agent and a state policeman in Minnesota. Um, and so we're five books into that, and then then the other book is a book for teenagers that uh, was actually the first thing I ever wrote when I was like nineteen, and it didn't get anywhere. I put it in a drawer, and published it after I was a few books into this contract or this, this adult series, but, uh, it's with a different publisher. So they didn't want, uh, they didn't want to like dilute the brand or whatever the right. own brand. Oh, well, I see. Cause, cause one's like a crime thriller type thing. And the other one is like more for kids. So they want to kind of keep your, yeah. 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 They don't uh, want people, your branding. Exactly. That, I mean, that's exactly how they put it. And I, I was lucky enough that, uh, I got to pick my pen name. They gave me some kind of awkward ones that they <laughs> suggested that sounded more like porn star names. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's funny. Um, Luke Cannon was going to be the uh, Luke Cannon. Luke Cannon. Yeah, yeah that definitely sounds like a, like a bit of a porno name. But yeah, kind of a cool porno. Kind of, name. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if I were doing porn, that might be my. <laughs> but so. Uh, why, uh, what, actually not why, but what, what was that experience like of, of revisiting a book that you wrote when you were 19 from having, cause like, I'm sure that you, you learned a lot, you know, following that and then to come back and revisit that and, and yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was scary. Like, I mean, if you think about who you were as a 19 year old, you probably <laughs> did some things you were ashamed of. Uh, I was, yeah, it was, it was tough. First of all, it was formatted in a completely different side so to like mess around with the computer. But, um, then I was, I, you know, I was concerned that the writing would suck 
And it was actually not as bad as I thought, but it was really emo. Like, it was really clearly written by, like, a 19-year-old dude who didn't get out much. And, <laughs> and so, like, the, the revisiting process was mostly cleaning up the, like, whining about how the world had mistreated you know, this 19-year-old protagonist right. was a stand-in yeah. for me. We kind of refer to that sometimes as we OC'd it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like that. Revisiting like that. some stuff. Mm-hmm. Not that, Again, not that, like, you know, I still, I, although it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I loved that first season of The O.C. Yeah, I like the first season it's a lot. Been, it's been yeah. a long time, but... <laughs> yeah. Well, and also I saw it, like, ten years ago, so who knows? Well, it's funny. We, uh, we revisited that a couple of years ago, and... It was actually my first time ever watching it. Oh, really? Uh, but I thought it was good. I, you know, I only watched the first season, but it was good. Yeah. yeah, after the first season, it gets a little bit dramatic. It gets a little soap opera. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Plus, I don't know if you noticed this about the first season, but I, I really noticed they had a template for the way they would do the show. Like, mm-hmm. they would always have a party, and the parents would always make up at the end of it. There right. was always, like, this kind of, like, these things happen yeah. every episode. There was always a this really dark element, almost, to every single episode in that first season. Mm-hmm. At least as far as, like, a, a teen yeah, drama yeah. went. You know, it went into some dark territory, and then I thought that the following seasons they it got a little bit more family friendly and a little bit more you know like i, I feel like they, edgy. They, you know they, they compromised a thought on what the original like the vision of what that first season was right, right you know obviously there has to be some kind of an evolution that occurs you can't just stay in the same place but it, i felt like they departed from too much from the things that made it what it was mm. i mean i think sooner or later you run out of challenges that you can realistically throw at these kids i my secret <laughs> guilty pleasure was gossip girl uh oh like okay. a few years ago which is the same thing I, I think it was the same creators or showrunners and it was the same sort of like you know there's always a party there's always like rich people you know wealth porn and you know there's <laughs> always like one of the group is in love with the other group and it's unrequited and you know you just run through these iterations and sooner or later the wheels fall off right don't you think, like, teenagers, though, like, I mean, young people are are open to more complex story concepts these days? Or do you think... Yeah. Like, I mean, I know they, they are drawn to the whole relationship. Does she like me? Does he like me? Type of issue, right? But, um, yeah, I don't know. I think, like, audiences are maturing a bit. Yeah, it's funny, writing for teens. Uh, when I was a few books into my, my FBI series, my agent, you know... I had some time, and so I wanted to write something else, and my agent suggested I write a, a young adult novel. Um, and so I tried, and I wrote something that was like, you know, like your dad wrote it. Like, it was like, there's, you know, no sex, no drugs, no swearing, <laughs> very strong morals. Like, it was lame. And I, I showed it to my agent, and she was really lukewarm about it. So I dusted this thing off that I'd written when I was 19. And, like, it's essentially the plot of Scarface uh, in a high school. Oh. So, like, there's, you know, there's drugs, there's sex. Uh, it's like a 50,000-word novel, and the F word is three, literally 300 of those words. <laughs> uh, there's a threesome. There's, I'm like, fine, people right? doing, like, designer drugs. And it's it's sold practically overnight. Mm. Wow. Uh, and, I mean, like, I you know, I kind of had reservations about showing it to a teenage audience, but everything I've heard is is that, you know, teens really like that stuff and I think that I think you're right I think uh, 
especially like it's an adult producing content for teenagers, the temptation is to, to dumb it down. But yeah. But I, so for me, it's like, because you said you wrote this book and it was, it came on kind of strong with this like adult morality. Yeah. Yeah. Things. Yeah. Uh, and so was there still, uh, because sometimes when you take on these things with like, because that is a tough subject to take on with, with teens, like you don't really, you know, you don't want to advocate and promote and glorify drugs and like no. being promiscuous necessarily like, or, or just being, you know, risky behavior without there being any sense of consequence right, or, right. or, or yeah, some way that that's going to pan out or negative consequences to these things. So are you able to paint that in a sort of a light, like include it to, because there's a sort of a sensational thing about that yeah. stuff, but also I think, uh, yeah, I think that's a great point. I think, um, the book's called how to win in high school. Okay. Um, and it, uh, you know, I kind of, it's, it's actually a pretty moral book. Like I think, I think, you know, as a parent, if you were looking at it, you would see drug sex wearing you would think not for my kid, but I think, uh, your kid reading it is going to lap up that stuff. And then like you say, it has to, it has to pay off somewhere or it has to come back and, you know, in Scarface, he dies at the end. Like he, he lives a life for a while and he, you know, it all comes back to haunt him. And so I, I think that, I think like if you are producing content for teens, you could push the envelope, but you really do have to like make sure that you're you're not on the that you're falling on the right line of, of glorifying versus right. You know, yeah, you got to watch out the, for the morals and the ethics of it. But there's always going to be people who misinterpret it. Yeah, yeah. no matter because there's people who like I know people who look at Scarface and like they idolize the character oh, yeah, of people. Tony Montana. Or it's like the Wolf of Wall Street, which we've yeah. talked on, where people are just like, oh, it was like a glorification of being an asshole. It's like, um, did you watch the movie? <laughs> like, did you see what happened to this guy? <laughs> yeah. But people people just, like, miss that completely. Scarface, I mean, the, the entire, like, gangster rap industry is built on glorifying Tony Montana. It's like, you know, pe- it's like people just cut it off 80% of the way through when it and didn't see the end because, I mean, I like fundamentally it's a movie about how shitty it is to be a drug dealer yeah like how how scary it is how much you're looking over your shoulder how much you don't trust people and the end it's just fueled on cocaine and a shotgun to the back yeah yeah (laughs) well you know that's uh that's really that's uh really accurate actually you know there's um one of the police uh really big police officer in vancouver actually i had a conversation with her and she was talking about how there was a you know she would be dealing with these young guys who are in the you know drug industry and all that Mm -hmm. stuff and she said, uh, you know, there's one time where one of the guys like basically like, like was almost crying on her shoulder because he was like, I don't know if my buddy's going to shoot me in the back or not, because it's so cutthroat. Like there's, yeah, yeah. there's this high life, but then there's so much ego and all this other stuff involved. And I think that, you know, we have this kind of glorification in our culture about money and success and getting things. Yeah, for sure. But you know, is, is that worth the lifestyle that you'd have to live? Right. But once you're in it, you know, how do you, how do you get, how out? get yeah, out? How do you get yeah. out? How do you walk away? You know? Yeah. Thought I was out. They pulled me back. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie, uh, so, so how to win in high school, that's already out. Yeah. It came out, uh, a year ago last week. Great. Mm-hmm. And then this next one that comes out is the sequel to that. Mm, no, I, uh, what comes out next week is the watcher and the wall, which is the fifth oh. book in the, uh, in the adult series. Okay, so the, yeah, so I've read the first three novels that you wrote from that series. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't read the last one yet, um, but uh, 
the, the, they were excellent. And the first one Thanks. particularly, I, you know, uh, basically it was about these young kids who get into kidnapping. Right. And, yeah. uh, and it's so crazy because, uh, you know, just the way you wrote that story, I mean, it really kind of launches you into the series, which is ironically, like I found that the actual protagonists of the story don't seem like the protagonists. They kind of seem like the antagonists in the first one, which is really interesting because you kind of flip it around. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's essentially, it's, you know, I wrote it when I was like in my late twenties and I was, you know, kind of struggling for work. And it's a story about four kids in their late twenties who had come out of university and can't find jobs. And, and they were really, I mean, so they, they turned to kidnapping as a, as a way to pay the bills and they were really the protagonists for me. And it was only after, uh, I got the book deal that the publisher wanted these cops who had been kind of, you know, essentially foils for the, for the protagonists to carry a series. And yeah. So that's, that's where I wound up. But I mean, you've, you've met some of the people, Brandon, who are, who inspired, and I guess you have too, Evan, who, who've inspired, uh, the characters in that book. And yeah, so they were really, names. you know, they, <laughs> you know they're your, friends of mine. Friends. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, speaking of inspiration, like this, it's such a interesting premise. Like that's like, that's like great. Like for us in, in script writing and screenwriting, like what a, what a log line. It's just like these guys who, who like are out of, out of money and out of options turn to kidnapping as a source of income. It's like, what? <laughs> like what, like what's, so how, where, how did that idea come? Like, where did that come from? Oh, you well, saw a rich guy and you're like, it's like I wish I could nab him. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, when the book first came out, I had a different story because I was ashamed of the real story. But now that the book's been out for five years, the real story is I was sitting in my mom's basement watching Man on Fire, which is the movie with Denzel yep. Washington, the Tony yeah. Scott movie. He has the so, words that like fly up on the screen. Yeah, so, yeah, right? yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's like protecting Dakota Fanning, maybe, and her family in Mexico. And it got me thinking, you know, in in Mexico and in parts of the developing world kidnapping is a like a viable career and so i thought well what you know what would what would it take to become a, a professional kidnapper in in uh north america and i landed on this scheme where they only kidnap uh you know moderately wealthy individuals they turn it over really quick like 48 hours and they're out and they're on the road to the next city the next businessman and at the same time, like my friends, it was an economic uh, meltdown in the States. And my friends, my American friends, some of their banks were going out of business and stuff. And so, you know, they were really hurting. And I thought, well, here's a good, you know, social background to it, to this kind of sensational Yeah, it's story. very timely. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So these pieces just started coming together and, and start to infuse themselves into this, this piece of fiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was really like I, I sat down with the idea of this, you know, the way that they were going to kidnap people. I didn't know who the kidnappers were going to be. The, the kind of economic meltdown thing was just, it wasn't even something I was thinking about. And after I wrote the first chapter, which is the kidnapping, I had to figure out who the kidnappers were. And I decided that I wanted to write about, you know, if I was going to spend 400 pages with these characters, I wanted them to be people I could relate to and be interested in. So, you know, who better than these friends of mine who were experiencing, you know, pretty rough times at the moment and so from there it really it really did snowball i mean i know when when you're writing screenplays there's a lot of uh a lot of outlining a lot of a lot of pre-planning uh with me with novels anyway it's it's really just like starting with a crime and letting it snowball 
It's interesting because cool. your um, what I found is that your novels tend to be quite well structured. Like when if you were to break them down as a screenwriter, mm-hmm. which you know I am, but I've I've noticed they have quite a bit of great structure, especially your first one. I mean, you know, you hit that rock bottom moment for the characters, and I remember. I won't ruin it, but there's this moment where I was just like, how are they ever <laughs> going to get out of this? Like, I was just like, and like putting the book down was not an option. <laughs> it was like, That's what we like to hear. Yeah. And that was, you know, that, that was just such a, such a great moment. And then the way it unfolded, what I found was very natural and very believable. Um, but you know, and then the climax and everything. And I still didn't, you know what I liked about that, especially the first one. I mean, I think when you start reading a series and you understand who the main characters are, you start to get a little more, okay, well, I think I know what's might happen. But with this one, because it was the first in the series, um, and I I would be surprised if anyone really knows what happens, but I I was like, I don't know how this is going to resolve. And I was like, I kind of had hopes it would resolve one way. And then when it resolved, you know, I was like, whoa like I was just like I, I remember putting it down and just kind of thinking about it and I was like <laughs> but it was it was well done you know it was really well done to open up the whole series well thanks I, mm-hmm. I mean I've heard I've heard from a lot of people that the ending I mean caught them by surprise or, or they were not happy with the ending for, for reasons like they were you know it, I think it's a good ending but I think that it, it kind of goes against what people might want. Yeah. But I think, you know, you know, it's a, it's a good point. Cause I think if you're trying to please everybody, you almost have a lackluster ending and it's, um, sometimes the endings that upset some people, you know, like mm-hmm. if you haven't seen the departed, you know, um, some people don't like the ending of that movie. You know what I mean? I remember some people being so upset with it, but yeah, you know, look at it, look at the movie. I mean, it's brilliant, right? Yes. Yeah. So, and you know, there's, in in a certain way that was the way you needed to end it to you know well i i um i mean i knew how i wanted the book to end or how i would have liked the book to end you know just cuz i was invested in these characters but but as far as the story went you know i, I mean it's kind of similar to what you're saying Evan, about about you know glorifying drug sex and violence in teen books like your characters always have to have a reckoning Mm-hmm. If they're if they're you know doing something wrong in the Wolf of Wall Street, the guy cannot just I mean he kind of does right off into the sunset, but there has to be some like reckoning uh, reckoning point. And for me, part of the inspiration of of that book of the Professionals was the movie Heat, which is one of my all time favorites. Oh yeah, I mean I think that we all want De Niro to get away at the end. We all want, like for me, I remember watching it the first time, and he's in that Camaro driving with his girl to the airport. They're going to get on the flight. They're going to fly to Fiji or whatever, and they're going to just live happily ever after. And at the last moment, he swerves and gets off because he has to go kill this dude who's inconsequential, who's, you know... If he just kept driving, he would have been fine. (laughs) And he would have got away, but I don't think it would have been as as satisfying an ending. But, man, it's a punch to the gut the way that it does end. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a movie I haven't thought about for a while. But, yeah, it's... That's that is I, I feel like a brilliant piece of modern heist crime yeah. film. Like it was definitely that was Michael Mann I think who it directed was, that, yeah. and that was that's one of his absolute masterpieces I think. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's like that ending when those two have have that showdown at the yeah. end. You don't you. I remember my experience of it was which is like I don't even know how to feel about about right. this because like I. 
I'm attached to both of these yeah. people and, and what each, and they're both a mess. Like that's the other thing that yeah. I love about their characters. They're both an absolute mess and failed in so many ways. They really are. All they do well is their profession. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I remember lying in bed hearing like the, the sound from the closing tracks, just like wishing I could get that final scene out of my mind, but it wouldn't have been, you know, they had to have that final showdown. They had to have that like moment where they come back together. But man, I guess, you know, also with a story too, you need, you need that sense of completion. To some you degree. do. You know, if, um, you know, some movies you can leave it open to some degree, but there's a certain amount of closure we kind of want from a story. Yeah. Otherwise we're just, just, it's not that you're, it's not that it's an up or down ending, but there's a dissatisfaction, you know, that can come yeah. from a, an ending that doesn't wrap up to some degree. Uh, where like there, you know, even if you don't like it, you're still kind of satisfied with the ending is better than being dissatisfied. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if, I mean, who, who would have been satisfied if De Niro got on the plane and drove away and Pacino was just left, you know, watching the plane fly off and yeah. just wouldn't, as an audience, you would hate it as a, as someone who studies story, you would wonder what kind of, yeah. And I think in some ways, like we, we as an audience want want to see them come back together again mm-hmm. and and have this final you got it this final thing yeah you you almost i mean you it's do. set up in that to. uh that amazing coffee shop scene that like iconic scene in the middle of the yeah. movie where they you know have that insane showdown and they have that conversation which yeah. just you know, it's like and they say even to each other like maybe we'll never see each other again right but, yeah you know if it comes down to that situation like, I'll put you down. <laughs> like, and at that point, hesitation. you know that they have to, you know, that has to happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that that was based on a real life incident that like, cause Michael Mann cribbed off a lot of, uh, well, Thief, one of his first movies was, was kind of based on talking to actual criminals in Chicago and, and one of the criminals that actually had a situation like this where a cop had pulled him over and taken him into the coffee shop and they had like had a face to face. Wow. I know. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, wild. that's yeah. I, I, I mean, I read that a, a while ago, but hmm. it's pretty fascinating. So it's like, kind of like, uh, the truth, like the, the things that are real life often inspire these creative. Yeah. Ideas, well, right? like, uh, the actor Dennis Farina was a cop until Michael Mann, like put him in a movie or had him, had him as a consultant, and then he became a cop, full, or the, he became an actor full time. Like, oh wow! It's it, it's kind of, I mean it's kind of amazing the depths that that Michael Mann went to to immerse himself in a you know in the crime world to get it right, and the depths that some some people go to. Yeah. So so speaking of movies and stories, you actually had uh, I, I know you had the professionals. You had an option mm-hmm. made as a film. Is that still optioned? How's that all going? No, the option ran out in January. Um, they had it for three years. It was, uh, I mean, they were great. They, they, I think, I mean, you guys know Hollywood. I think it. Yeah. Well, things get optioned all the time. And they yeah. Necessarily get made. I mean, that's the nature of the whole business. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I mean, when I, when it first got optioned, my agent said, you know, don't, don't get your hopes up. Just cash a check. <laughs> and that you know it paid my rent for two years so I was pretty happy about that but um yeah I, I think I think it's exciting yeah it's really exciting it and for me like I'm 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 such a like 
nerd about this stuff that when people are filming in my neighborhood, I'll, you know, stop and watch because I'm, like, fascinated by it all. And so hearing that, you know, so-and-so from such production company wants to do your work, wants to, you know, option your work. Well, I mean, if you think about all the writers out there who have never even had their book optioned, I mean, to have a major company, a major Hollywood yeah. company want to option and then re-option your, your, your book, I mean, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was pretty proud to be, to be associated with, with these guys that, you know, they had a pretty strong presence at the Oscars this year, so I, I, you know, I felt, and it's funny how that came about, because a friend of mine was working in development here in Vancouver for, for this producer who was the brother of, uh, of a guy in LA who was like a big, a big presence, I guess. And, and we had a meeting, I had a meeting with this producer that I overslept for. Uh, <laughs> Writers. Yeah. My friend <laughs> called me at like quarter after 11 and I was still in bed for some reason. And the meeting was set for 11. So I you know drove over and amazingly, he still liked it liked me enough to option it. And, and, you know, every few months I'd hear from them. Every year I'd hear from them with an update. Uh, they, they'd have other actors that they were, you know, talking about putting in it. And it's fun to, like, fantasize about that. And at the end of the day, if it happens, it happens. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, if, um, for anybody on the other side of this who doesn't know, I mean, there's, you know, when, you're, when your project gets optioned, there's what a production company is trying to do at that point is they're trying to attach a name to it. Mm-hmm. And then from there, they're trying to verify whether this this particular project can make money right now. You know what I right. mean? Right. And, and the fact that they wanted to option it, I mean, if anybody, if you get optioned, usually what's happened is they've optioned several other things, if not many more than that. Yeah. And so they're doing this way scale thing. Should we make this project? Should we make that project? Should we make this one? And whether it gets made or not, I don't think really has anything to do with how good your material is, but you know, who wants to do that movie right now? What will sell right now? You know, and, and a variation of other factors. Yeah, or what they think will sell. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's the rub. I mean, it, yeah, I mean, I think we, if you watch Hollywood at all, you, you see that there's tons more projects than, you know, in development that never get produced. And that's, I think that's just a fact of the business. Yeah. But i tell you what you got to do is you've got to write a a trilogy about <laughs> a teenage girl who saves a post-apocalyptic world from destroying itself. Yeah. Guaranteed, man. That's you know what? It's oh funny. A, a friend of mine, uh, a friend of mine, um, handsome love interest. Got it. Like love triangle. You got to have the bad boy and the two. good guy. You got to have two guys. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. Two. Yeah. A friend of mine was writing um, what's called cozy mysteries that are just mysteries for uh, you know people who aren't really into blood. It's kind of, you know, like, they usually have names, like, there's one for celiacs called Gluten for Punishment, and it's about, like, a, <laughs> you know, a murder that, that happens in a in a gluten-free bakery. Uh, that's by a friend of mine named Nancy Para, but uh, <laughs> my, my friend was writing this series that was set in a roller skating rink, and she wrote about four of them, and she did okay, and then we shared an agent, and my agent told her to write a young adult series, too. She wrote a trilogy about a girl who saves the world from a post-apocalyptic wasteland or, you know, she's, uh, has full page ads in entertainment weekly now and you know, optioned by Paramount. You know, I think she ran out her house on the money. Like, it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's wild. good books, but that's, I, I think that there's something to be said for, uh, 
for keeping an eye on the market and, and tapping into uh, you know the commercial so, side of things. You know, yeah. like, in your opinion, like okay, so you're you know because we were talking a little bit before we had the call, we were talking a little bit about keeping your integrity and mm-hmm. and, and how, how we sell out a little here and there and whatever. Um, we, I don't know. Do you can you speak about that? Like you know how you watch the market and kind of see what works at the same time, keeping your integrity as an artist to write something you care about, even though you know it's going to be commercially successful or hope it's going to be commercially yeah. successful. Well, somebody told me when I was when I was starting out that um, you know the potential to get readers or viewers with a commercial project is a lot better than with a you know a passion project that's that's just you know a personal story that's just the facts and when I started writing I kind of thought that I would write you know just stories about my life like stories about a 20 year old guy kind of more like literary down the pipe but I think that the market for that is is not is not big like you certainly couldn't make a living unless you were at the top like 0.1% and for me um it was important to, to try to make a living as a writer. And and so part of that involved arguably selling out a little bit. Uh, in that I... I mean, I've always liked crime fiction. I love crime movies. So that was kind of a natural fit. Up. So yeah. it was a natural compromise. It was, yeah. I mean, yeah. the more the selling out was more in that I'm a Canadian. But my books are set in the States. My publisher's in the States. And my... Uh, agents in the states, and that was a conscious decision to set the books in America, to find an American agent, and to get a publisher in New York. Because, I mean, you guys know, as Canadian artists, it's really difficult to make a living unless you have, you can tap into the American audience, and, and Americans won't really consume Canadian art. Yeah, I mean, and I and I think that that's that's a pretty international thing. Yeah, you know, it's it's you know, even in the UK, maybe not as much as it is here, but like even in the UK, it's like, there's, you, you see these interviews with, with people from, from there who are like, it's like, yeah, it's great when you make it here, but there's still something, there's still something about making it in America that just like, that just takes you to a whole, a whole nother stratosphere of, of sort of success. Right, especially in a financial and you know public standpoint. Yeah, Russell Peters, the, the comic, had a an article in the Globe and Mail a while back where he talked about that same thing, and he said that if you want to make more than you know thirty thousand dollars a year as a, as an artist in Canada, you really have to tap into the American American market, and it's not all about money, obviously. But I think you know if you do want to make a living as an artist. It, it really, you know, behooves you to, to, to try to tap into the American money. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked about, uh, just like in terms of, of like screenwriting and things. And, and I always like to think it's like, you know, a lot of these things, they translate Mm -hmm. across different mediums, different art forms, uh, that, you know, if you can, you can find opportunities within something that you don't think that, that you're necessarily interested in. You know, or sometimes you can look at something and like, well, I, I never thought about taking something like that on. Do I have something that I feel I can, yeah. I can put into this? Do I, can I twist this in some way? Is there some, is there some form that I can make this come together that, For sure. that will still 
nourish me in a sense of like my own artistic self that I don't, I won't feel like an empty shill while I'm in the process of doing this thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's really, that's a really good, good way of looking at it. I, you know, I wrote my first book, the professionals and, and it was intended to be a standalone. It was intended for these kidnappers friends to, you know, have their book. And then, uh, the publisher wanted a, a series and it wasn't something I'd ever considered, and it really wasn't something. You know, these, the the FBI lived in agents lived in Minnesota, so it would be a series set in Minnesota, which wasn't really something that I had planned. <laughs> yeah, no, Minnesota's like, not the, like necessarily the most romantic these, of these settings. Are, these are those wonderful things about like you know you try you have this idea, but these are these wonderful things that then end up almost being perfect because they're in Minnesota. Like, I mean, it's so, it's so, like, I mean, when I wrote my first, uh, crime thriller, crime thriller script, mm-hmm. which has changed drastically. I know you read one of the first, yeah, yeah. it's, it's total. it's like on the other side of the country now, it's like totally Sweet. different, right? It's like Sweet. in Oakland, you know, like it's just, it went from New York city. Like that was, I'm just going to place it in New York, which is yeah. so obvious now that I think about it, right. To do the New York. Oakland's a good locale. Yeah. And so then anyway, that. things might still change, but I think it's really cool that they're in Minnesota because it's like. You know, you just wouldn't almost think to plant them there. You know what I mean? No, yeah. yeah. One of those beautiful things. I would not have. I, I had no experience <laughs> with Minnesota. Like, I passed through on a train once. Yeah. yeah. And it can be such an incredible source of inspiration. That's one of the things that uh, I read this article. I can't remember who wrote it now, but it was about the Coen brothers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some people actually criticize them for this, but essentially, and it, there's actually some truth in all of this is that they take on these, almost these microcosms of culture, especially within the States. Like all these, like they took on Minnesota and Fargo. Yeah. 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 Uh, and where was it like in no country for old men? I mean, that was a, a Cormac McCarthy, but like they, everything like they have, they take these little sure. spots, these little sort of communities within, within there. And they, and they tell these stories inside that, that you don't necessarily expect, Mm -hmm. you know, you're like, Oh, because we see we're fed so much stuff. It's like, it takes place in Los Angeles, takes place in New York, takes place in maybe in Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) And then if we want to get international, we go Paris, we go London, you know, there's, but there's the obvious cities. It's so obvious, right? You know, it's funny. Uh, and, and, uh, I want to continue on with your point Owen, but uh, what you're talking about there, but yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how I, Evan and I talk a lot about this, about how sometimes it's good just to write it the first time and just get Mm -hmm. it down. And then to look at how obvious and cliche your initial writing is. And then like, uh, to take it back and go, okay, what's cliche and how can I make this? How can I uncliche this? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Certainly. I think that's maybe one of the secrets to my success as a writer has been writing crappy first drafts. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I think you meet a lot of people who, who tinker with the first, you know, maybe the first 10 pages of a screenplay, the first 30 pages of a novel, the first few chapters of a novel, and they have like the perfect first act of their screenplay, but they have nothing for the second and third act. So they have the, you know, a perfect few chapters. And I always, I always say that if you just let yourself suck and write something that's bad, and then, then you'll have, you know, something that you can go back and, and chisel down as something it's like a it's like a sculptor with a slab of marble like, yeah you know making the, the basic outline i'm so glad you shared details. that especially you being as like you know as successfully published as you are as an author and 
you know, um, and we can talk a little bit more about like all the success you've had that way. But I think that's so important. I say that all the time to screenwriters, um, is just write that first mm-hmm. draft. Don't worry about if it's perfect or not. You know, there's just so many books, like I've read so many screenwriting books and they always say first 10 pages, you know, first 10 pages, that's what they're going to read in Hollywood. Yeah. If they don't like your first 10 pages, they're going to throw it out. But if you, if you kind of read beyond that, they always say, yeah, but your 11th page and your 12th page, right. and your 88th page needs to be good too. And, uh, actually, um, like producers and, 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 uh, people who produce movies are pretty intelligent these days. They they'll read the first 10 pages, the first seven, actually not yep. 10 anymore. It's, it's five to really? seven. If you're not actually, it's the first page. And then it's the seventh page. And then if it's not good by then, you're like, I'm out, right? Yeah. So you don't even make 10 anymore. And then what they do is if you're, you know, they, they'll flip just to a random page mm-hmm. somewhere in the screenplay and you don't control this and they'll read, is it any good on this page? And they'll flip to another page. And is it any good here? Yeah. And then if it is, they'll go back and they'll actually sure. read the story. But if it's not good, if they start reading some crap somewhere later in the story, they'll be like, oh, this is going to just turn to garbage. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things. It's great to be aware of some of these things and how that functions on a professional level. But, you know, you, you hear, I've heard so many contradicting things about all this. It's like, oh, well, you know, you've got to have that great, great beginning. Right. You've got to have that great ending. But the problem that you'll really go into <laughs> is that the middle's usually really hollow, and it's, it's, it's like, so basically it needs to be great. Yeah, <laughs> it needs so, like the whole thing needs to be great at the end of the but day. But I think if you start if you start thinking that I need to write a great screenplay, then you'll just worry yourself and oh yeah, like you won't. I think if you start thinking I'm going to write a screenplay and I don't care how bad it is, <clears throat> it's just going to be a screenplay, and then I'm going to like make it better. Uh, it's a lot easier than, than setting out and thinking, I'm going to write the great American novel, first draft, you know, one take, boom, and I'm going to get rich and faint. Like, it's not going to work that way. No, no. it's not going to work like that for anybody. I mean, and, uh, you know, I think, um, I mean, I don't even know how many screenplays I've written now, and I'm, like, in the process of writing a bunch. And I, I, like, I'm so beyond trying to make it good. I'm like, this is going to suck. And I'm proud of that. You know what I mean? Cause I'm like, cause I need it to suck. Cause if it's my best, then where do I go from there? I want it to be like, I'm just going to get it done. And then I'm going to go back and I'm going to read it and I'm going to see all the things. But usually what I find is, I don't know if you experienced this, but novels, but I usually find the idea for the scene, the idea of what I wanted to do mm-hmm. is usually pretty, pretty good. But how I wrote it, the how execution. cliche it was and yeah. how you know, how it lacked depth. That's just what happens because I just needed to get it done. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's like, so the idea is usually pretty good, but the execution of it is just limited in the first rate. I mean, that's, that, that's better than, than executing perfect scenes that do yeah. not fit with the story. Exactly. Which, yeah. Like <laughs> I tend to run into that. Well, that's another thing too, is, uh, you know, they, and they say this writing is rewriting, mm-hmm. but if you spend like countless hours perfecting the scene, making it so perfect. And then they say, well, this doesn't work. We need to do rewrites. That's going to be like, like, you know, they say it's killing your babies. That's going to be so hard to get rid of that scene because you, you, you just sweat blood and tears over this thing, like to get it perfect. And that doesn't even work in your story. But if you write it out and you're like, okay, I'm just going to write this scene. And then you kind of work it a little later you're not so attached. So like you go, ah, maybe I can just get rid of this. It's like, you know, I mean, I think that, uh, I think that what separates professional writers and successful professional writers from, from people who may have more talent, but aren't, 
you know, haven't had the same success is, is the ability to be self-critical and the ability to self-edit. And that is, I mean, that's something, you know, when I, when I look at, when I write a f- awful first draft, I'll print it out and look at it and, and read it like it's my worst enemy who wrote it and just tear it to shreds. Good for you. That's amazing. Uh, I learned it from a creative writing prof who <laughs> happened to be one of my writing idols who like gave me a D on my first story I handed him and handed into him and just tore it apart. Uh, I think you have to be merciless. And I think that, you know, if, if you, you talk about killing your babies, if you, if you look at a piece of something that you've written and can't bear to get rid of it, even though you know that it's not functional to the story, then, you know, there's something wrong. You need to get past that. I think, right. I think it, it all has to be in service uh, to the story. Well, you know, um, the Burning Blues script, I, I've mentioned this yeah. a few times on the podcast, you read the one of the early, early drafts, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> that got me a little bite for financing, which we've been did, we've been doing rewrites and doing rewrites and doing rewrites, Yeah. but I sat down, I remember, and I was like, okay, and I looked at it, and I said, you know, I, what I want to do with this, and I literally just erased everything I wrote kept one scene I was like I want this one scene to be in there and actually I'm erasing that scene now so the, the it's amazing that, how that works the script that you read will will actually literally look nothing like the one you read it's entirely like almost 100% different I've written an entirely new script but I, I wrote like 99 pretty much percent of the script over again and it was in my opinion 10 times better and, yeah. and I, yeah. I think I mean, you, uh, couldn't you, know, have you got probably vouched for that because you read both yeah versions, yeah so. absolutely and um, like I I this made me think of this, uh, this talk I saw John Cleese give, yeah. you know, and he was talking about, uh, about this personal experience he had when he was doing Monty Python and he, he wrote this sketch, you know, he typed it up on, you know, yeah. typed this thing up <laughs> and, uh, this, this sketch for them all to do. And he woke up the next morning and couldn't find it. Like he lost it. He's like, I don't know how the hell I lost this thing. And he was freaking out and he was just like, ah, oh. like, so he sits back down and to the best of his knowledge, you know, he's like, okay, I'll go back and, yeah. and he rewrote it. So he rewrites this sketch and then he ends up finding the original <laughs> one. He reads them both. And the new one that he wrote, he said was far superior to the original one, which he was just going to move ahead with. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just amazing. so extraordinary. Yeah, it's like just like don't don't be attached to that first one. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just that's getting the that's getting the garbage out. You know, like it that's is. like it's it gets the idea out, but it also gets the garbage out, and it, I think it also helps you get some of those like the voices in your head. Like yeah. it helps you get around that too, because like especially in that first draft when you're first getting making your idea your story into something that's tangible you know, you're coming up against the most resistance for sure. You know, like you're, you're just hitting this thing. And it's just like, you're garbage, you're shit. It's like, Oh, just, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, just write it. Just, just keep get it out before get it the out. voice is over. Because take. once, yeah, once you've got it done, like then it, like it helps to really just quiet all of them because now yeah. it's done. You know what I'm interested in on is, uh, <clears throat> I'm new to novel writing. I mean, mm-hmm. I've written, I don't know. I'm, I'm writing my first novel. I think I've written, I don't know, 10 chapters maybe into it. But um, when I find with screenwriting, 
it's 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 an interesting thing with screenwriting. You don't have to work out the thoughts, and you don't have, you don't have to yeah. go into so much detail about something. So you can kind of like, I'm just gonna have them say this, and then I'm, they're gonna say this, and they're gonna say this, and you kind of almost punch through a scene. Like I can punch through a scene in literally minutes sometimes. Yeah. Yep. Whereas with um, with novel writing, <clears throat> which I gotta say I actually love it more, but I, I was curious, like when you write your first draft, I mean, because you're getting so much more detail to a scene, mm-hmm. how, how do you find the rewriting process? Like, I mean, I, I imagine for me, because I spent so much more time thinking and developing the internal world of a scene, it's almost harder for me to say, get rid of a chapter. Like yeah. getting rid of a scene in a, in a script is easier because I can just go, okay, it goes from there to there. And I just got to write basically, if I understand their emotional plight, then I can yeah. do it. Right. But with the novel I'm like wow like I might have to write like thousands of words <laughs> right yeah it, I mean it's daunting I personally I find <clears throat> screenwriting really challenging because I can't get into the world like I, I find uh, I can't get into the emotion the, the inner world so relying on dialogue I find really challenging hmm. so my screenplays are just terrible the dialogue is so good <laughs> but um we're a good match you and I <laughs> yeah <laughs> um as so long as you don't hire me to adapt the <laughs> screenplay of your yeah, novel. Right. <laughs> well, it's like, for me, when I started screenwriting, because I didn't really know how to do it or what to do. Like I could look up at technical things and mm-hmm. read books, and but there, I remember at the beginning saying, "Like, well, how do I actually want to write a script? How do I want to do that?" And I realized that I wanted to do it more like a play. I want to write it because like there's so much action yeah. that's written in screenplays. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't, I really don't want to direct too much with this. You know, I want the dialogue to direct it and there to be a lot happening within those yeah. words that's happening. So it's sometimes it's picking a stylistic choice sure. mm-hmm. in terms of how you want to do it. I mean, I know that there are certain standards that are expected you know, of you to to achieve, we had uh, Emilio on. Yeah, last, we had Emilio on the yeah, last. He wrote, a, he wrote a screenplay. Um, mm-hmm. He's he's done his I don't know, eleventh draft or tenth draft that we uh, did a table read for, and it's um, yeah, it's been an interesting experience with that. I find though with with screenwriting, um, yeah, you just want to continue to cut action. You want to just continue to cut parentheticals and continue to cut action and continue to sure. cut description, and. Like, uh, you know, if anything, like I'm constantly realizing that I put too much action in, yeah. in the script, you know, it's just not necessary. And it, it, you know, there's a, they say like with screenwriting, you know, it's, you're, you're kind of like as a screenwriter, you have to write for almost two different audiences, actually three, you have to write one for the producers that are going to finance it. You right. got to write for the people who almost don't have an imagination and fill in their imagination. Yeah. And then you need to write the, <clears throat> then you need to write the story and, 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 and take away the spoon and let them feed themselves. Uh-huh. And then after that, um, if you're involved with it, then you need to write the shooting draft, which is all about, you know, tailoring to the production of it, yeah. which is like, an, it's an interesting three brain, three brain kind yeah. of operation. Yeah, definitely. Um, but novel writing which has been really fun for me. And actually the reason why I started writing novels was because they kept telling me to cut my script. We want it shorter. We want it shorter. We want it shorter. <laughs> my first draft that I gave them was like 140 pages or whatever. It was very much like, 
you know, whatever. And I, I felt like, okay, it was long, but I was like, okay, we'll figure out where to cut it. Yeah. And then they were like, well, we're not, we don't even want to look at it until you get to 110. So then I did 110 wow. rewrite. I had, to, I had to cut 30 pages, yeah. which is pretty massive. And then I did my 110 and they were like, we want it to be 90, but we want you to get it down to 90. Wow. So I'm like, like 50 pages of my script, like yeah. so much. And so you know, you start looking at what subplot can go and like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, how can I cut scenes in half? I got absolutely brutally murderous with this script. You know what I mean? Um, and I realized I was like, it, I got so upset with having to cut this stuff and not being able to develop plot lines that I was like, it'd be so much better to write a novel. And then I started writing a, uh, a novel and it was like heaven for me because I was like, <laughs> I don't <laughs> like, and people were like, how long is your novel going to be? And I was like, 300 pages, 600 pages. I was like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> oh man. I mean? Well, I mean, I, I hate to tell you this, but cutting is not, is not exclusive to screen right now. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Well, when I wrote the professionals, um, the first draft was 150,000 words, which is long for a novel, especially for a thriller. And, uh, second draft for anyone else read it, I, I went through it and I cut, cut it down to 95,000 words. So I cut like a third of it. Uh, and it wasn't, I mean, for me, cutting is therapeutic. Like for me, part of the joy of writing like a crime novel is getting to cut the stuff that, that slows it down. And I think, you know, for me, my objective is to keep people's pages turning and keep people up until three in the morning without, you know, wanting to put the book down. And so Mm -hmm. to do that, you know, you just cut mercilessly and I find it fun I think that you do have more room in a novel to to expand upon things, but I think especially especially with crime fiction, like well, I still have a lot of needless subplots. That so so <laughs> you said you cut it down to ninety thousand words, right? yeah, and it was how many words? One hundred and fifty thousand. So one hundred fifty thousand. So the average screenplay is, I think, I believe it's eighteen thousand words. Wow. So when you comparatively like compare the amount of cutting, like yeah, yeah. I mean. I don't, I, I, I don't know. Cause I'm not, I, I don't, I haven't written enough novels to, to know what the experience is like, yeah. but it's almost like every word in a screenplay is so precious. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so That's why goes, I'm terrible like... at screenplays because <laughs> <laughs> I write by just like spewing onto the page and I don't yeah. feel like you can do that with a screenplay. Um, <clears throat> and I, I mean, my, I, I'm still, I, I consider myself still an amateur novelist, but I remember I wrote this one scene. It was really weird. As my scene was progressing plot-wise, things were kind of happening. Mm-hmm. And then there's this this scene, basically, in the story where he basically gets, um, they, they basically get jumped, you know, and his phone gets stolen, his wallet gets stolen, everything. And he, he's in, like, a third-world country or whatever, and he yeah. doesn't have, and he's trying to get in touch with somebody, but doesn't know where she is or where her hotel is or her number or anything. And so the whole, the whole chapter of my book is him sitting on a bench thinking. <laughs> and I was like, you would never get to do this in a screenplay no. unless you demonstrated his thoughts with like, right. you know, a, a voiceover. No, or, you couldn't uh, do a voiceover. No, you couldn't. It would be, it would be terrible. <laughs> You'd be it, it wouldn't, you, you know, well, you know what? I'll never say never. Yeah. I'll never say never. never there, say you never. can, you, you can knows? make something so compelling. Like I think That's I've true. probably said so many times in the show. It's like, you could be, you know, I've watched you know, some, some action movie where like guns are going off and there's explosions and I'm falling asleep or I'm checking my phone. And then I've watched a scene where there's literally two people like sitting at a table in silence Uh and you're just like, 
<clears throat> you're just pulled and yeah, sucked yeah. right oh, into yeah. it, and you go, <laughs> You know, there's uh, there's there's two. You might appreciate this, Owen. There's two two things I want to refer to. One is uh, it's on Netflix called Better Call Saul. At least it's currently on there. There's the I think it's episode seven out of ten. I'm pretty sure where he has this monologue. Please don't spoil this I'm, for me. I, I'm not, <laughs> not going to ruin anything, but please do yourself a favor. And if you don't even watch the show, watch this monologue that he has about his son and about the police force. It is so compelling. Like it is one of those things where you're watching and you're like, I don't even ever want to take my eyes off the screen. Really? It's so good. And nothing happens other than two people sitting on a, basically across from a coffee uh-huh. table talking, you know? And then, uh, there's another show that I've been watching called in treatment. Um, it's a, I think it's a, it's HBO. I think it was, yeah, a yeah. series. I don't know, but, um, yeah, I've been watching it and it's literally just people kind of usually in a room talking to their therapist and they tell these stories about their life. You never really see right. it. They just tell the story and the acting and the, is so great. It kind of shows you that, you know, I think with screenwriting, I think there's a lot of screenwriters that are always like, let's show this big action sequence. Let's do this big thing. Yeah. And it's like, some of that's just not necessary. I yeah. think it's the safe choice, but like, as you said, you watch an action sequence and you're like bored out of your mind. Well, it's a lot easier to write guns going off than it is to write like meaningful human, human interaction. Yeah. Human yeah. interaction, human behavior, like what, yeah. What being human is. Yeah. <laughs> I just watched, I watched spotlight, which I'd been meaning to watch oh, for yeah. a long time, but I watched it over the weekend. And I think that's an example of, I don't know. Have you guys, did you guys see it? Yeah, 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 I've seen it. Yeah. You know, when they have the victims come into the lawyer's office and they're interviewing the victims or wherever they're interviewing the victims and they're talking about these horrible things that happened. For me, that was, I mean, it was the most compelling thing because the acting was spectacular. The writing was like, you're on the edge of your seat and it's really just three people in a room talking. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I thought it was a really terrific, you know, and they're, they don't make too many movies like that anymore. No. Um, and it was definitely a very, I felt it was more of a, of a plot driven show, though it did have, it did have some really terrific characters, obviously fantastic actors, but I was more pulled in by the, the plot yeah. than anything else. With that said, you know, I, there were some things that I really loved about it. And if you saw, if you saw Spotlight, maybe some spoilers ahead, I'm not going to get too <laughs> details, detailed into it, but you know, there was some things that I really appreciated about because it led me to feel like, oh, this, like the lawyer, for instance, mm. you know, um, played by Billy Crudup, who I'm, yeah, that guy, I just love that guy. Anyhow, uh, he is fantastic. <laughs> he is fantastic. And I'm like, oh, he's playing kind of this bad guy in uh-huh. it, you know, like he's, he's protecting these people and from all of this stuff. And he's known about this. And then there's this spot at the end where it's like, he's this piece of shit. And then all of a sudden he goes, it's like, I contacted you like four years ago about this and you didn't do anything. And I was like, you know what the amazing thing about that? (laughs) Yeah. You know what the amazing thing about that scene is, is that it really happened, but it wasn't the reporters. It was the filmmakers who came to him and were like, yo dude, like you were the lawyer who defended these things. Why didn't you report it earlier? And he told Tom McCarthy and the filmmakers, like, I did report it. They didn't do anything. So they put it in the movie as reporters, but it's, I mean, oh. it's such a fantastic yeah, it's like, scene. why did no, and it was like, why didn't anybody do, do anything about this? It's devastating. Yeah. You know, yeah. And it was such, and obviously because it's, it's just removed straight from, 
straight from life, straight mm-hmm. from something yeah. that's happened and is happening. Yeah. Wild. Well, and I think, you know, th- that's the thing about Spotlight is that it doesn't, it doesn't rely on all these, uh, <clears throat> it doesn't rely on all these, um, physical, physical things happening in the world. No. It, it, it relies on usually two people trying to communicate about something and just the, the importance and the power of that yeah. conversation in that moment in time. Um, actually when they showed the Oscars for it for best screenplay, um, you know, the scene that they used at the Oscars was, was very much like that. It was like, was it, it was Mark Ruffalo and, uh, um, Michael Keaton. Yeah. yeah Michael Keaton. <clears throat> and he was like, there's been 20 and he's like, that's all. And he's like, that's all. And like, he walks away yeah. and like, like <clears throat> just the, just th- th- there's so much going on. Like it doesn't seem like there's a lot going on, but there's so much going on. And, um, if anything, if I know about screenwriting and the more and more that I perfect my craft with it is, is it's subtext, subtext, yeah. subtext, subtext, everything that's not said in a screenplay is what's the most yeah. important thing in the world. And everything that's said is almost not important. And, you know, I think when I began screenwriting, I used to think what was being said was important. You know, and, and that's what you realize as you go through. Yeah, it's that yeah. you can have the characters literally say just about anything. As long as you have that subtext underneath, it, it's, it's, an, it's yeah, amazing. It's, it's kind of a weird little magic trick you pull. Yeah, I, I remember my, uh, my Meisner teacher, and as far as like acting, the big thing is, is that it's like there's never nothing. There's always something. Like there's, and that was something, like even with silence, <clears throat> and that goes... That goes in so many things, not just in, in writing, whether that's for, you know, for a novel mm-hmm. or for a screenplay. Like, one of my favorite guitar players of all time is B.B. King. Sure. God rest his soul. Thank <laughs> you for your gifts upon the world, sir. Um, and one of the things that, that, as a guitar player, that he's taught me is that is how much of guitar playing is the notes that you don't play. Sure. It is those spaces in between it because it's all about communicating some kind of an emotion, mm-hmm. some kind of an idea. And sometimes that means, which is why I, I probably have a lot of a disassociation with a lot of the guitarists from like the eighties and stuff, you know, where it was just like in your face, in your face shredding and stuff. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, I, I, I didn't feel like it, it brought me into it. Whereas someone like BB King, it was sure. just like, he, he brought you into it and and then just took you away at the same time. There's a great video of him playing with John Mayer and John Mayer is like, who I also love as a guitar yeah. player. Um, he was getting a little bit like, like, Oh, I'm playing with my idol. So he's, he's getting a little yeah, showy yeah, yeah, and yeah. like getting a little bit <laughs> fancy with these, with his playing. So he would play and then, and then BB King would play and then he would play. And after this one run, BB King just kind of like went and he just played one note. He played one note. And he let it just like ring out for, it feels like an eternity, uh-huh. but it's in technically it's, it's extraordinary that it, yeah. to, to do, to hold this note. But like, he just lets this one thing just kind of sing out through the air and it just kind of made everything that John did with all this <laughs> fancy up and down and like, like yeah. and you're like, Whoa, he just kind of took you like he gave you a bit of a lesson there. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I think he was deliberate in doing it too, but it's like, sometimes you just got to I mean, I think it's, Strip I think it's something it away. you learn as a, as an artist, just because you can do something or just because you can throw something in that, you know, you, it doesn't mean that you should, I think mm-hmm. subtext in particular, mm-hmm. um, or, or talking about spotlight, I think it, it, 
you know, if they'd made a movie about priests abusing children and throw, thrown in scenes of priests abusing children, it would have been a far worse movie. Oh, movie yeah. That, no, you know, you don't need it. You, you ha- we all can imagine that. We all, you know, we're all aware of how terrible it is. And to have it looming over the movie is enough. You don't need to see. You don't need to see it. Yeah, no. That's it's a really good point. Is that you know it, there's so much that you don't need to see, and like <clears throat> they, you know, Evan and I have been working this horror movie. We've been writing it and rewriting it, and trying to work on horror. Uh, but one of the big things that we kept coming across in our research was just about how in the older horror movies, part of the reason why they were so scary, you know, is they always point about like you never see it, you know, yeah, like, yeah, and how. I mean, how important that was. Like, and, and usually, <clears throat> I don't even know, like, in a lot of cases, it wasn't because they were great storytellers. They literally didn't have the budget right, to show it. Yeah. So it, it, inadvertently, they became kind of great horror makers. But, yeah. um, you know, and they talked a lot about that with Spielberg and Jaws because the shark wouldn't work. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And the fact that you can't see it and, and you don't get enough visual to understand it is part of what makes it kind of scary, right? Definitely. You know? And, like, when they show the bad guy, like, you know, and I think it's the nature, like, I mean, just, like, the nature of fear, just as one emotion, is, like, is, it's once you unknown. understand it, it's no longer yeah. scary. You yeah, know, the, it needs to be unknown. We can all think of movies where, you know, the, it's scary until they reveal the monster, and then yeah. you're like, well, I, uh, Yeah, and then it gets corny. Yeah. Um, so, I have, I have a couple questions. One was, in your crime thriller, uh your novels, right? They're mm. constantly, these detectives are constantly finding clues, you know, clues are left behind. And yep. they're, they're, how do you come up with all that stuff? How do you figure all that out? So like, they're kind of constantly tailing them and yeah, well, it's an interesting I think, thing. um, you know, I, I, I don't think I could ever write a, a real mystery novel where you don't know who the killer is until the end. And I have, I have friends who write really good mystery novels and some of them write, mysteries where they don't even know who the killer is until they reach the end of the novel. And I I need to start knowing who the criminal is, what the crime is, what their intentions are. And, and, you know, the criminals in my books are as much characters as the cops are. And so, I mean, it it's, it's essentially just having a crime, getting the cops involved somehow, which is sometimes harder than it sounds, given that it's a state policeman and an FBI agent. And then you know, the, the characters, it, it, it's so oversaid to, to talk about the characters telling the story, but really, um, the characters will determine what, you know, what, what happens. Um, in, uh, in the book that came out last year, The Stolen Ones, it's about two sisters from Romania who are, uh, kidnapped and brought into America as sex, as sex slaves. They're brought in a shipping container and one gets out of the shipping container and the other doesn't. And the container like keeps going, so it's the one sister's, you know, trying to find this container with her other sister in it before she gets sold off to the. And, you know, I think if if you have a grasp of their motivation, like sister A wants to chase this container, sister B wants to survive. The cops want to. I mean, the cops are called in because sister A is found with a loaded gun and a body beside her, not speaking any English, and so the cops get into it that way, and then. You know, what a great, what a great dilemma too. Like, or I mean, a great challenge, I should say. She doesn't speak English. And, yeah, you know, yeah. She's, you know, she's the mur- the cops brought in to investigate this woman as a murder suspect, and then it turns out that she's, you know, doesn't speak in English. She's Romanian. She's 
they finally get a translator in and it turns out there's another girl in a container and and so I think I think if for me it's all about the setup and if the setup's there then the you know the characters will kind of chase each other until the big finale mm. yeah we used to have this acting teacher actually uh, Ted Whittle and he would always say when you're acting in this scene <clears throat> we would restart the first moment of the scene over and over and over again until yeah. we were fully connected because he said if you get that first moment that first moment is connected in a lot of ways it's like what's the point in working the rest of it let's get that first moment sure. and, and he was so correct because often if you could get that first moment it was enough to let the whole scene unfold you know yeah. what i mean um yeah i think it's true i think if you if you nail the opening then you know you're as an actor you're probably in the mind space that the scene unfolds how it should yeah and as a writer if you you know if you if you can nail the setup then yeah, there's, I mean, there's a term in business and they, they call front-end your work. You know, mm. do all your hard work, your hard, difficult, scary crap. Do it all first. And then once that's done, the rest is a piece of cake. Sure. But, but most people fail at business because they wait until they, they try to put all their hard stuff at the end and they mm-hmm. try and take care of the easy stuff. And it's like you're just setting yourself up to climb a steeper and steeper hill. And if yeah. you don't like that first hill it's only going to get worse. Right. But if you, if you climb up the hardest part right in the beginning yeah. and you do that work, the rest is, the rest you is know, a breeze. Yeah. The rest is a breeze. Um, so the other thing I was going to ask was, uh, well, what's this, what's this newest novel that you're writing on the watcher on the wall? Yeah. Okay. So it's, um, it's pretty like dark novel and it's pretty personal, uh, one for me. Um, I always thought that I wouldn't write about, like, I don't, I'm not, I'm pretty squeamish. So I don't like writing about like, serial killers or like you know sex crimes and stuff this book is about um it's based on a real life story there was a girl in ottawa who like she was 18 years old she was a university student and she jumped off a bridge and killed herself and i remember reading about it and then a little later it came out that she had done it because she had been she had had a suicide pact with another girl online um and so you know that that's why she killed herself and then a little after that it came up that this other girl online was actually a middle-aged man from minnesota who got his kicks getting people to kill themselves on webcam for and like i mean i i mean i can't think of much that's more despicable than that and when i was researching the case he he had appealed you know he'd been charged with something he'd, he'd appealed it and he'd gone off because it was a free speech thing. Like there was no law against using the internet to encourage someone to kill themselves. Um, and so he was free. And now he's, he's since been convicted and he's served his time, which was 360 days in jail. But he, you know, it wasn't just this one girl that he victimized. There were, there were, there's a dude in England. There was people in South America. Like he, he was kind of a serial killer. Mm. And, uh, you know, I don't think any of us had like a really easy uh, teenage, I don't think, you know, teenage years are hard for everyone. And for someone to, to target teenagers that way was really something that like hit me. And so, you know, you were asking about, about writing things that are personal and don't, don't just leave you like an empty shell. Well, this is one that, that really, you know, having, having dealt with depression this was something that really got me. And so the book, long, long introduction, but the book is about my cop, Stevens and Windermere, 
Stevens is the state policeman. He has a daughter who's in high school, and one of her classmates kills himself. And it turns out that he had a, a suicide pact with a girl online. And as they, like, go into it, uh, they discover that it's not a girl, but it's this, like, middle-aged man who gets his kicks doing this, and he's, you know... He, it's funny because I like to name characters after my friends, and one of one of my character or one of my readers and friends is, is a big fan of these books. Uh, his name's Wesley Gruber, and he wanted to be named the victim in my next book, and so I named him the victim in this book. And then he got so like the character got so slimy that I had to I, I had to rename him because I couldn't. Because <laughs> dude's parents read read these books too, and they like my books too, so I couldn't have them thinking yeah. that like their son. Anyways, so <laughs> yeah. Well, you know that, uh, and thank you for sharing that because I mean, if there's anything about artist integrity, I mean, to take the things that really hit mm. you emotionally and try to tell that story. And um, I remember hearing about that, and like, you know, and to put it in a way where it's, um, I don't know, where people can, you know, the beautiful thing about novels and your novels is that you, you know, you do, uh, you do quite a good job at trying to empathize with the characters and and and. Uh, you know, for your state policeman, you know, him having the daughter. I haven't, I, I know the story because I read the first three mm-hmm. to some degree, but um, for him to have the daughter and have that personal connection to the situation, yeah. which, you know, it's kind of these wonderful miracles almost that work out in a story, you know, when you're in a mm-hmm. series because, you know. It's true. Yeah, when you had him have a daughter as a character creation and a development, you know, it, 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 it created an option for this story to exist and be so personal. And yeah. that's one thing they talk about in screenwriting and storytelling a lot is try to make a personal connection somehow to the character because it's not personal. It almost doesn't matter, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think I think one of the... I mean, one of the really important things about writing fiction, whether it's screenplays or novels, is to have... to be able to have empathy for for every character in your novel, you know, to, to know that, it, that every character wants something and every character has an objective and every character, you know, thinks they're the good guy. I think even if you're writing a criminal, you got to be able to empathize with what they're doing. I think, you know, for me, if I read something or watch a movie where it's, it's obvious that the screenwriter or the director is putting themselves in a position of judgment on people or like, you know, putting themselves you like essentially saying to the audience, "Hey, look at this guy! Look at what an idiot he is." It's I find it really distasteful. I think that that the best works are works where you you can relate to, to what people are doing, and even if you can't condone what they're doing, you can certainly understand why they're doing it. So let me ask you the hardest question: the Watcher on the Wall. Uh-huh. How, how did you empathize with him, and how, how was that experience for you? Yeah, well, that was tough because. Um, like what kind of monster would do something like this? And and as I did research, I couldn't find much. You know, it's, it's obviously not a very common thing that pe- that people are doing this. I couldn't really find much psychological background on him or on anyone who would do this. And so for for me, it was really important to get that to get you know a handle on why he did it, or, or certainly why I thought my character would do it. And, and for me, I I created a backstory. I know you're not supposed to use flashbacks in fiction, but in, in novels you can kind of get away with it. <laughs> uh, so we, we we spend a lot of time with this guy as a teenager and his own experiences, and it's basically you know him feeling marginalized and feeling like he doesn't have any power, and his way of 
feeling like he has power is to, you know, kind of control other people or convince other people to do what he wants. Um, but it is, it is bleak. And I think, I think as a crime writer, it's, you know, you have moments where you like read the news and you think, oh, that'd be a good story. I mean, with the Burning Blues, for instance, you think, oh, this undercover cop, it's a great story. And it is. Mm-hmm. It's a, but, but I mean, it's also like that, that stuff happens. That is, that is human beings live, they go through stuff like that. And for me, you know, researching the stolen ones, which is about the sisters and, you know, reading about people spending two weeks in a 40 foot shipping container or, or, you know, researching teen suicide, it, it really grounds you. And I think it really, it, you know, it prevents you from just writing a bunch of people killing each other or, or shooting off guns and, and trying to focus on focus on the people. It sounds like your research is a like monumentally important part of your process. Like, um, you know, where you're, because I mean, by doing the research, you're, you're, you know, you're exposing yourself to more of the stuff that I think a lot of us probably, we don't even want to think about, you know, like we don't want to, I mean, as you know, it's painful enough just to read in the newspaper that, mm-hmm. you know, a teen's committed suicide. I mean, it's, it's almost something where you, you read it and you almost, at least I know this for myself is like, I, I, I don't want to feel it too much because it would be so hard to actually yeah. really feel it. And then you, you know, you're writing novels where you're day after day. I don't know how long it takes you to write a novel and then rewrite a novel, mm-hmm. but you're literally connecting back into that over and over like that's that, that's where the professionalism i think really comes in is the willingness to you know i think you do i mean i think it, it, it can sometimes be all too easy to just to just see it as characters on a page and i think the research is important uh like you say for for just underlying that that these are human beings this happens and as far as research like i i, I don't spend a lot of time researching before I write like I'll, I'll research enough to get to get the gist but I think that a lot of times you can act like research is writing mm-hmm. and you can feel good about a day spent researching when you know probably you know two sentences of what you've read is going to make it into the book I think research is important I think you know if I were going to write the burning blues I'd want to have a handle on what it's well, I didn't like do any be... research when I wrote the first draft. No, but then... I researched after. Yeah. And, and I feel like research gets in your way. It does. But it's important. It was important I did the research, but after I wrote the script, in a way. I think it... I, like, more. You, know, you more don't want to get... Yeah. You don't want to get in the way of the story. Yeah. I think, for me, if I do a lot of research, I want to... I wind up, you know, parroting all the facts that I've found and, and, you know, writing a... You know, every chapter will have a little stat that I've found. And right. I think that as you write you'll come up with questions uh, like, oh, what would an undercover cop do in this situation? Right. And then you, that's when you do the research or, or you know, what what laws go toward, go against people, you know, encouraging other people to commit suicide. Then you start doing the research on that. So but, you kind of research a little as you go, like to answer questions. Yeah. But, but I'll, then, I'll like research cu- at the beginning. Cut-off but, point, like you're kind of like, okay, I'll, I'll answer this question and I'll move on kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's usually I'll be writing and I'll come up with something that I need an answer to, whether it's like, you know, the make of a certain car or like a legal question, and I'll go and look for it. And as long as I have a handle on what I can, you know, how I can keep moving the story along, then I'll, 
No. Yeah, because I mean, it's like the information statistics and when like that's not that's not a story. No, you're saying it's like it's not like it can help to inform your story, but the thing is, you have to create the meaning out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you can't just take that and yeah, like I I think you bring up a really great point that it's like you know you can get caught and sometimes I think that like research can become an excuse for not just going ahead with yeah. the work as yeah. well. Because it's like, it's like, it's important to be informed and for that to enrich what you do. But that's not what it's about. Like you're like, as a storyteller, you're telling a story and you're trying to create meaning and connection and, and, and create empathy. And, and you're, there's a different function as opposed to just presenting fact. It's like, yeah, here are some, like, I know some of the facts about this, but now I'm going to create something out of that. Certainly, like, I've, I've had people write me, like, I, I think, you know, I'm not going to pretend that not immersing myself in research doesn't mean that I don't make mistakes. Sometimes I'll have people write me uh, and point out mistakes, some of which are, you know, I made a legal error in, in a book, and somebody who was a legal expert wrote me to point it out. And it, he probably would change a lot of the book, but the tone of his email was like, Hey, I loved your book. Here's the legal thing that you got wrong. It didn't affect my enjoyment of the book. Keep writing. I'll keep reading. And I think, you know, if the story is good, people, people don't necessarily need to, to see the, you know, every gory detail. Yeah. It can be easier to parrot statistics than it is to, than it can be to write a good story. And I think if you, if you can write a good story, then you can make the, the research work it's easier really, than yeah, you can. Absolutely. I once, I once read that you don't need to understand how, how the sun, how the sun works in order for yeah. you to enjoy the warmth that it gives. Right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really apt. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and you know, uh, I think the hardest the hardest thing about writing is the emotional, the emotional impact that you have on the audience and the willingness for you to go in and investigate what that feels like, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, um, you know, it's, it's interesting too, like, uh, uh, you know, in, in rewriting too, because, you know, the, you get to a certain point where like everything's really good and then everything's just kind of being pushed to being great. And that's a different process than going like, does my script work or not? Like, it's like, it's already works. Like we're not talking about whether it works or not. We're talking about what we can do with it now. Yeah. And I found the most challenging part of that rewrite process is how willing am I to go into what some of this stuff feels like and how willing am I to, cause you know what? I find this is one of my challenges as a writer. I find that there's a, like, there's a character I relate to. It's really easy for me to empathize with them. There's a character who I don't relate to, or maybe I have, they, they remind me of someone else who I maybe don't understand or I don't like, mm-hmm. you know, and it's harder to empathize with that person. But the real work is done when you go in and empathize yeah. with the person you don't like it's true. or you don't know, you know, and that's, and that's what three dimensionalizes your, yeah. your story. And that's the hard work because then it actually influences the person you do understand. And then it creates this true. crazy, like emotional firework yeah. Thing going on. That's, yeah, that's what I'm finding more and more. I, for my, um, the next book, the Stevens and Windermere book that comes out next year, it's kind of based on the, um, Picton murders in, in Vancouver. I live in that neighborhood. And so it's, it's constantly on my mind, but 
So I had to get into the mind of this of a human being who would, you know, murder forty women, which is also despicable. And part of that part of that was like going through and I read there was like a mass shooting in the States a couple of years ago where a guy shot up a university campus because he wasn't he was he, he I mean he couldn't get laid, for lack of a better yeah, way to he put has it. A, a video online or he had a video online. He has a hundred and forty page manifesto, which I read. Wow. Uh to get into this person's mind. And I mean it was like just nauseating stuff, but like, you know, he's here's somebody who like bought a BMW because he thought that it would get him girls and then parked his BMW and no girls talked to him. So he hated women and just terrible. But I read his manifesto to try to get into this person's head. And like, hopefully I, I really agree. I think if you can get into the head of the people who your reader or your viewer is not going to like, or the person that your reader or viewer is not going to experience on a day to day basis, then you can really, it's good for you as a writer. It's good for you, the the audience. I think it kind of transcends just reading or reinforcing what you already know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's that's great. Um, let's take a little commercial break here and, and talk about our craft beer. Oh yes, <laughs> Evan got it today. Yes, so. indeed. This, this is delicious. It, this is uh, from Railtown Brewing Company on uh, Adenac. I believe Adenac Street, just off oh, yeah, of Clark, uh, and uh, this in Vancouver, BC. In Vancouver, BC, and this is um, one of their small batches. This is called their Belt Up ESB. It's great. It is. Yeah, I like it. Well, that's good when the guest enjoys it. <laughs> I mean, I feel like every time I come on here, it's like I like it. I like, it. <laughs> I I like, like it. beer. It's beer, and I'm drinking it. <laughs> Well, you know, every every beer has a little bit of a it has a little bit of a difference. This is a darker one. Um, I don't know. Let's see here. I find it's got like um, it's 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 not. It's kind of like very mellow, almost. Like you know, mm-hmm. it kind of finishes very mellow. You know, mm-hmm. it's like it's almost like um, it kind of has a little bit of punch in the beginning. Like not even really a punch, just kind of a little flavor, and then it kind of just mellows right up. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting. It's different than I normally drink. Yeah, how's how's its mouth feel, Brandon? <laughs> <laughs> My least favorite word. Mouth feel. Mouth feel. Mouth feel. Terrible just, word. Just, just fine, Evan. Just fine. <laughs> I'm not gonna get into that. <laughs> you can talk all you want about mouth feel. Mm, it's got a very earthy mouth feel. Oh, God. <laughs> Beer, drinking it. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, so so how many novels now in the crime series? Uh, there will be five, and and the sixth one just got accepted. So what date's the release of this next one? March fifteenth. March fifteenth. Okay. That's and then, coming right up. Oh yeah, that's yeah. coming right up. I'm a I'm gonna be on tour in six days. Great. What's tour like? Uh, it's I mean it's amazing. Like it it's exhausting. So I'll be doing seven cities in eight days or something, and it's it's like it's fantastic. It's also extremely grueling. It it uh, you know you wake up, there's a car waiting for you, a car service. They take you to the airport, you fly to a city. There's someone waiting to pick you up. Uh, I'm doing a TV spot in Phoenix, which is my first stop. It's the first time I've ever done a TV thing, so I'm a bit you know nervous about that. But. Well, we've prepped you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this has been good. Yeah, this has been great. But yeah, yeah you do. Um, 
you do a book reading in the evening at a bookstore. Sometimes you'll do a dinner. Sometimes you'll do other, you know, book signings, and then you'll go to the hotel. And then at six in the morning, there's a another car, car waiting for yeah. you to get airport but, next. City. But they put you in, you know. It, it's fun to be chauffeured around in town cars. They put you in really swanky hotels. The the, the hotel that they put you in in Houston, which is a, a big stop for me. Uh, last time they put me in a hotel room that didn't have a number. It had a name. It was called It Happened One Night. And it was bigger than my apartment. Uh, <laughs> so And it's all, you know, it's all paid for. So it, you get this, like, you know, most of the time when you're writing, you're just kind of like alone in your room. And, and then sometimes <laughs> you have these moments of just like transcendence. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I imagine that, that going to LA or, or smoozing with film producers is kind of a similar. Yeah. Like, it's vibe. funny. You know, you get invited to these parties and you're just like, what is this place in Malibu? <laughs> 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 uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. I hear that. That's, so it, it, so the grueling part is just kind of that you're always on, or yeah, it's. I mean, fortunately, like I am somebody who doesn't. I, I kind of like interacting with readers. I like doing readings and stuff. So it's it's fun that way. But it is. I remember a couple of years ago coming home from tour and, you know, getting in on a Friday night and on Saturday I had literally nothing to do. Where for the last eight days I had a schedule where like every minute was was, you know, something that I had to do or somewhere that I had to be. Every minute was plotted out. Every, you know, interaction was people who you know, wanted to meet me, was, you know, being a rock star. And I really felt like be, like I was a rock star coming off tour and all of a sudden, you know, getting back to normal life and thinking, like, what what am I, what am I going to do with myself now? <laughs> like, <laughs> the book's out, the tour is over. Like, yeah. you know, what? Um, Write another book. <laughs> well, that was pretty much it, but... but I mean, I think, I think as a writer, you kind of think, well, I'm going to get a book published or I'm going to get a screenplay produced and my life's going to change. And in some ways it does, but it, it's not like you come home to a Ferrari. Like you come home to the same place that you were living in the same, you know, life. And, you know, one of the things that I found really kind of a learning process about writing books was that I, I, I had pinned all my hopes and almost my self-worth on this accomplishment of getting a book published uh, yeah. and and thinking well if I get this book published uh, my life will be you know complete my life will be complete <laughs> my life will be better yeah. uh, I will have a, and you know you publish a book and it's great uh, I'm very proud of it I'm proud to be where I am but you really have to learn to, to separate your your sense of personal self-worth from your, you know, accomplishments. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting too, like with the screenwriting is, uh, <clears throat> you know, people come up to me and going, well, you know, I thought your, your life was like this or whatever. And it's like, well, it's, it's, it's interesting because you're like doing it. But I think, um, I, I heard something the other day, it was maybe it was a book I was reading or I heard it on some podcast I was listening to, but they were talking about how like, uh, um, you only like f- what the world sees and what they think it's like mm-hmm. is about 5% of your existence. Right. And then the 95% of it is the stuff that we don't see, which is really the stuff about sitting down on your own and writing a script yeah. or writing a novel yeah. or, or practicing your music or yeah. whatever you're doing. Right. And, and we've talked about that. It's like, you better like love 
the process of what yeah. you do because mm-hmm. if you don't uh, because yeah like those things like the tour is like that's that's eight days of your year yeah exactly <laughs> if and you're living great, for eight but... days a year like maybe you're in the wrong thing yeah <laughs> not that it isn't great like not that that is wonderful and you shouldn't enjoy no, like that but... experience when it comes to you like absolutely but you know it's like the when people climb Mount Everest, it's like, you're only up there <laughs> for like 15 minutes for about 15 minutes. Yeah. You right. know, because it's not necessary. Like I, I once read this, um, the same, but it was from a mountain climber. So it's like, it's actually like you set the goal of climbing this peak because that just makes the, pr- like the process of the climb possible. Sure. Yeah. Like otherwise it's not possible for you to, to do the journey if you don't have that there. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's actually not really about it. It's just to make, it's just to make that climb possible. Mm. That's, that's really interesting. I, I just read a book about Everest and I, I had, I hadn't really thought about it that way. I thought Jesus is a lot of work to be done for like 15 minutes at the top of a mountain, but you're right. I mean, you, on the way over here, I was thinking about what, you know, what we were going to talk about. And I was thinking about how, like there's a lot of mythology about about writing or about working in the creative industry in, in any creative art. There's a lot of you know it, you could present writing a novel as being this like mystical thing, or you could present like acting in a movie as being like a you know it's something above and beyond. But when you get down to it, it's work. And I think you know the the thing that separates people who succeed in, in the creative fields for people who don't is the willingness to like sit down and treat it like a job and take it seriously and, and really work. And I think you really have to love the work. I think it, you know, I, when I was starting writing, I really wanted to go on a book tour and I really wanted to experience what it was like to have, you know, people come see me read and be flown all over the world. But that certainly isn't the, you know, that's not the, the goal the money isn't the goal. The goal is to, to create and, and I mean, whatever now I'm preaching, but that's the, <laughs> that's all right. You know? We, I guess, if you consider that preaching, then I guess we preach all the time. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I get on my, my, my <laughs> you're so fucked. Well, good. Um, but no, that's a, I think that's a good message. I, I think, you know, like, uh, yeah, it's, um, I can, I can relate to that too. You know, you get financing for a project or you get this paycheck for a script and mm-hmm. you think, Oh, everything's going to be, and it's not. I mean, it's, you know, you're still going back, you're doing rewrites, you're still at the same old little cafe you were at, right? yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not like, you know, and uh, I think, um, I think there's this, uh, uh, this kind of like glorification of art, you know, in the world where there's like, you know, you see people winning the Oscar, you see yeah. people on stage getting recognition, having talks on media, and we think that that's what an artist's life is like, mm-hmm. and that's just a very, very small part of it, and, um, I think that it's good to have the goal, but I, it sounds to me like when you kind of went on tour, you had that experience, you faced, you know, obviously you wrote another book and you wrote another yeah. book and you wrote another book and you continued to write. Mm-hmm. Something must have altered in your, like, it's almost like, and, and, and I'm not, I don't mean this in insulting way. If anything, I'm saying this about myself uh-huh. is that it's a very immature, we have a very immature goal usually, yeah. which is like, I want to be famous. I want to be successful. I want to make money. But then you do it and then you're like, okay, now what? <laughs> you know, like, 
Is it like it was more money, yeah. more success, more fame? That was that was exactly it. Like right. I, it was my second book, and I got off tour, and I you know poured my kind of heart into this book. I I, I hadn't expected to ever write it. I, I felt like I was learning to write all over again when I did write it. This is your second book. Second book, yeah, Criminal Enterprise, which was the first book that I wrote with my cops as the main characters, and and I toured for it. I had a great tour, and then I came home, and like. It was kind of almost like a postpartum depression. Like it was like you know, mm. now it's now this thing is this book is out there and everything I've you know been worrying about it's all gone and now there's nothing left but to write another book and to go through it all again. And I mean, it, it was kind of an empty feeling. And how I got over that was actually I I you know I volunteered with the Vancouver School Board uh, mentoring a you know, some, some 13 year olds who wanted to become writers. And a few months after I, my book came out and I got off tour, there was a, like a big mentorship party or whatever at one of the schools. And this 12 year old girl came, got up on stage and gave a speech about how like impactful I had, like what an impact I'd been on her life. And I was standing on stage and I nearly cried because I had been like, and it hit me really hard, this book coming out and, 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 you know, nothing, you know, just kind of not, not being sure where to go from there. And, and then having this kind of evidence that, that I had actually done something worthwhile. Mm. Uh, I mean, I think it kind of refined my, my sense of, of, you know, what's important. That's beautiful. That's, That's really true. beautiful. I feel like we shouldn't say anything more. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> okay, we, but we, Brandon, was but, but we do we do usually wrap up these talks with kind of a lesson uh, or, or a takeaway, something sure. we got from it. And you know what? I'll start because you're, what you said last to me, I can totally resonate with that. Um, you know, as as you know, I've been mentoring people with movie making and screenwriting. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Mentorship is um, is probably one of the most valuable things in the world you know what mm-hmm. i found is like um you write you know i write scripts and make movies and do my thing but when you see the impact of imparting that knowledge onto someone else and also i have mentors myself who mentor me and the gratitude that i have for them for sharing what they do and and i think that as artists of integrity i think ultimately initially, and I know this for myself, I was very, very self-involved and very, very focused Mm -hmm. on myself and making myself great and being the best and all that. And what I've come to at this point in my life is that, yeah, that's all really great and well, but it's about how does, what does that matter? Like, how does that impact the rest of the world and, 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 and share whatever I have inside of me? And I think, um, you know, you can mentorship directly and help someone write a script or make a movie, but you also kind of like when you tell a story and you get involved and people kind of go, that story really impacted me. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's a really cool thing. So I, I think it's great that you kind of shared that about the little girl because that's, I think that's why we tell stories is that they, they have an impact on someone else. They're not about us being great as storytellers. They're about how much did my story impact sure. someone else? That's what I'm taking away from all this, you know? Well, it's, I'm, I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk about as I was thinking about this was was your mentorship thing and how um, how much I've admired it because the people who go through those that program come out with a movie made or something. And, and you know, a lot of times when I have been I've been you know when I went to school for creative writing, 
there was never this idea. There was just this idea that you're just going to create art. You're just going to like indulge the muse. And, and what I really wanted was like a nuts and bolts way to be taught how to produce a publishable work, how to, and I think, I think that as far as like, you know, taking it from a, I think it's a great accomplishment to make a movie and it's a great accomplishment to publish a book, but it's not something that's outside of the realm of people's, you know, anyone can do it. And I think that, that what you do is, is you show people that and you show people that, you know, it, it's attainable. You just, you know, you put in the work and you'll get it done. Thanks. I really appreciate that. It's very kind of you to say. I, you know, that's, well, that's why I started it because I wanted people to just go out there, face their fears and make movies instead of talking about it. Cause you know, I originally, yes. I just remember seeing so many people sitting around in a cafe saying we should make a movie and nobody right. ever followed through. And I said, I'll just put together something that is a, if you, if you follow it step by step, guaranteed you will make a movie hundred percent. It's the only way you won't make it is if you stop taking steps for it. And I thought that's all, that's all I needed. Yeah. But thank you. I really appreciate that. It's no, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of how I approach talking to people who want to be writers is, you know, just, just get it done. I, I had a guy in my writing program when I went to school who I think he was focused as a screenwriter. We graduated with kind of no, you know, you graduate, you're kind of directionless. He maxed out his, maxed out his credit card, made a movie, maxed out his credit card again, made a movie the next year, got into TIFF, uh, has done a movie a year with like, you know, Jennifer Beals was in it. Now he's, he's directing movies with Danny Trejo and Steve Austin. Like he's a director for hire and he's also making his own movies. And it's just because Amazing. he, he did it. Cause he ignored the, the people who said it's too hard to make a movie. And he just, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the people who do it are either like too dumb to, to pay attention to the fact that it's <laughs> like, I always thought it's somebody's got to, someone's got to, be writing these books. Someone's got to be making these movies. Why can't it be me? And, and that's, you know, that's the, that's what I tell people is, is it's got to be somebody. So. Yeah. Why can't it be you? Yeah. That's amazing message to leave everybody with. Evan, do you have, is there anything that you want to take away? You know, this has been such a great talk. I've really enjoyed this and, and having you on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much. And, and chatting with us. Um, yeah, for me, it's like that, that, that story is, is, uh, that you told at the end about this, this 12 year old girl. It's like, that's like, that to me says so much more about all of this than, than anything. I mean, I, I loved what you said at the start about like, you know, just getting that first one out, getting the, yeah. <laughs> you know, just, uh, getting that, that crap out and then coming back, but also, you know, just uh, what this is all about. And, and, you know, I know you said that it's like, Oh, this is getting preachy, but you know, it's, it's, it's about, it's about creating and, and maybe also helping other people to create as well. Yeah. You know, finding that within themselves and, you know, that's what, what could, what could be more important than that? What could be more important than that? I don't know. I agree. I think it's, I think it's, I mean, I think, you know, what you guys are doing here is, is contributing to that. So it's, it's really been an honor to be on. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show, man. It's been amazing having you, and uh, maybe we'll release this podcast early just to Absolutely. coincide it with your book. Release. And uh, and we'll leave some links uh, with, oh, with sweet. the post as well to uh, to hook you up to some to awesome. some of your stuff. Yeah, sweet. Yeah, so links below this podcast and the blog here, and uh, 
and, and check out our blog at the well currently it's called the Brandon and Evan show <laughs> that might change but who knows we'll see I like the B&E show it's like breaking and enter yeah break and enter <laughs> actually it's funny because that was originally we were going to do a production company together called B&E Productions or yeah, yeah. And it, I think it ended up becoming like break and entertainment yeah break and entertainment oh man yeah, that's, that's amazing right. <laughs> Yeah, so, and he did, we actually... Which has now been registered by somebody... Oh, no. <laughs> well, we still have it registered, I think. Yeah, no, I think no. it's... You better pay yeah. your yeah. We did corporation register. dues. Um, but anyway, so, okay, um, great. And uh, if you want to learn more about novel writing, contact Owen. Yeah, hit me up. That was our show for today. Thanks a lot for listening and being a part of this. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe and share with your friends and family. Or you can learn more and message us at www.thebndpodcast.com. Oh, and make sure to leave a comment and rate us on iTunes. That will really help us out a lot. It definitely will. Thanks. Thanks.